You're listening to a message from Victory Dumaguete. We are down to the fourth installment of our series called Miracles. And I don't know with you, but if you have missed just an installment of this series, would be beneficial for you to look for that specific installment on our website or in other platforms that we have, Spotify or YouTube. We are on John chapter 6, so for the benefit perhaps of those who are joining us for the first time, we are on this series called Miracles, and we have been looking into the miracles of Jesus, the recorded miracles of Jesus, specifically in the book of John. So we started off by looking into John chapter 2, if you remember that, the first miracle of Jesus in Cana, in Galilee, and then we went straight to John chapter 4. Last Sunday, we were in John chapter 5. All right, and today we are in John chapter 6. All right, so turn your Bibles for a while to John chapter 6. And I am actually assuming that all of us are familiar with this story. This is the story wherein Jesus feeds the 5,000. We'll begin with verse 1 and we'll read from verse 1 down to verse 15. That's John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. We're reading from the ESV. It says here, after this, Jesus went away. To the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus then went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the crowd, the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let me start off by perhaps talking about this specific story. So here's what I'm going to do. You know, we have 15 verses here today, and who among you are familiar with this story? Like what I said, I'm assuming that most likely all of us are familiar with this story. So what I'm going to do here is I'm simply going to comb through on these verses, and we'll come on some, but later at the tail end, so that we won't take long to get to the end, so I'll just make some comments about the story, and then we'll go to the ultimate points that I think the story is telling each and every one of us. So Guru, I want to tell everyone that this is not just talking about Jesus being able to provide for you, though we know that Jesus can provide for us. Amen? 
Alright, so we know for a fact that's not in question, but this isn't a narrative that tells you that you're going to have thousands of breads on your table and stuff like that. It's way more than that and deeper than that, right? So it's interesting that, you know, while we were reading this a while ago, the passage, I realized that this story is actually bookended by two withdrawals to the mountain. Have you noticed that? He went to the mountain to withdraw from the crowd. And then in verse 15, it also says that, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What does that mean? I don't know yet. I just read it now, right? So let me just share a story for a while. Supposing that you're a father for teenagers and all your teenagers age 13, 16, 17, 18, they all went to, let's say, Tokyo with their mother. As to why you were left behind, I don't know. Maybe you're busy with work. But nonetheless, your four kids went to Tokyo with their mom for, let's say, a good three months vacation. Is that even possible? But anyway, they went to Tokyo for three months with their mom. So you have four kids, all teenagers. And then after three months, they went back. You fetched them from the airport. And you know how teenagers are, you know. So let's say you have guys like Engineer Lloyd, you have Mark, you have Charmaine, you have Basso. They all, you know, speak all together, all at the same time. So you're driving home and your four kids, what do they do? They start talking about their experience, isn't it? Right? They start telling you about their experiences and... Usually, they share the same story from different perspectives, right? So say, for instance, they're going to talk about the roller coaster ride, all right? So this one enjoyed it, would tell you how much they enjoyed the roller coaster ride. The other one would tell you how much he was angered by the roller coaster ride because he had a seatmate who vomited on him and stuff like that, right? And sometimes, two of the four would share the same story from the different perspectives. Sometimes, three of the four will share the story and one person will not want to be sharing the same story. No. The chances that all four of your kids share the same story in different perspective, it tells us that that story is noteworthy, it is important, it's something that should be brought to your attention. Say, for instance, all four of them told you that because of how tabian they were, they were left by the train. Lloyd tells you that, Sherman tells you that, Bass tells you that, you know, so they tell this story in different perspectives. So what it simply means is this story is so important. Are you folks following? Right? It tells us that this story is so important. So why am I sharing that? Look, this is the only miracle recorded in the four gospel accounts. So you have the gospel account of Matthew, the gospel account of Mark. And by the way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you only have two who are really the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, Right? So you have Matthew and John who are really following Jesus, Matthew the tax collector, John the beloved. And then you have Mark and Luke who came later on who started recording through what? Through eyewitnesses to records and interviews, isn't it? Now, for all four gospel accounts to have one story, to say one story, it tells you how important this story is. This is a story that is found in all four gospel accounts. So you could read a perspective of this story in Matthew, it's in John, it's in Luke, it's in Mark. Anywhere, any gospel accounts that you go to, you'll find this story. It's not the same with the other miracles. This is the only one, right? So I think I've established the fact that this is an important story, isn't it? Right? So this is an important one. So let's try to get into the context. What do we have here? Now we are in John chapter 6. If you remember, his first miracle was recorded in John chapter Two, right? First week of the series. So that's the first time that he made, in fact, that was actually a private miracle that benefited the public. The several people who were attending that wedding. 
Now, that was his first miracle, and at that junction, you know, people do not know him yet. Right? So he was just starting in his ministry. Now, we are in John chapter 6. What do we have here? What's the context? Here's the context. Things are hitting up. All right? Things are hitting up. In what sense? In what sense are things hitting up for the Lord Jesus Christ? Here's the first one. At this junction, John the Baptist has just died. I mean, think about this. John the Baptist has just died. So who's next? What do you think? Jesus. So John the Baptist has just died. So things are heating up. Now, before this, prior to this, those who are annoyed, it's different if annoyance leads to bitterness. Sometimes people are just annoyed with you, but if you keep repeating the same thing over and over and over again, people start becoming bitter towards you. Now, this junction, the Pharisees aren't just annoyed. The Pharisees are entirely angry with them that they're starting to plot something. So who are the opposition of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And here's another one. People at this junction has already started doubting the Lord Jesus Christ. Parang ganito lang. All right, just think about the Jewish Marites. They heard about the turning of water into wine. So news spread out. Hey, there's this guy who turned water into wine and then he started healing this lame man. So news keeps spreading out about him. People start visiting him because they were anticipating that this is going to be the person who's going to liberate them from the Roman rule. And then when they see him, he was so gentle. He was healing the sick. There is no urgency in what he was doing. He was playing with the kids. And people are like scratching their head. It's like, ah... this guy doesn't look like a military ruler. He can perhaps handle the hammer, but I'm not quite sure if he can handle the sword. You know what I'm talking about? So now, his oppositions were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the doubters. Alright? So people are starting to doubt him. Plus, of course, you have Herod, who was just prosecuted, John the Baptist, by having him killed. So that's the context that we have So at that junction, with that context, we go to verse 1. Here's what it says. And after this, after actually healing that lame man, it says here, Jesus went away to the other side of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So from the west, he now proceeds east. From the Mediterranean area, he went to the east, it says here, to the other side. And then in verse 2, it says here, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing with the sick. So what do we have here? Jesus went away. All right? So Jesus went away. He starts withdrawing. So here's what I want us to understand. This is in John chapter 6. The nice thing about this is, this is a story that's recorded in the four gospel accounts. Napansin nyo ba? People would sometimes say that, ah, you have four gospel accounts. How come they're different? They're kind of similar, but they're different. That's actually a case for Christianity, that they're different because they're coming from different perspective. Right? So, ibig sabihin, hindi po sila nag-usap-usap para isulat yung parehong bagay. Alright? So, anyway, that's a different thing. So, now, let's look into the account of Matthew. So, this is in John chapter 6. It says here, we went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. In Matthew chapter 14, turn your Bibles for about to Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. Look at this. It says here, now, when Jesus heard this, it says here, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself, But when the crowds heard it, it says here, they followed him on foot from the towns. 
Alright, so Jesus withdrew. Jesus went away according to John. According to Matthew, it says here, Jesus withdrew, took the boat, and went to a desolate place. Alright, he went to a desolate place, but the crowds, you know, heard it, and they started following from perhaps the river banks and stuff like that. Now, look at the account found in Mark. We also have this in Mark chapter 6. Here's what it says. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Alright, you get a story? So by reading all four gospel accounts, you kind of get the picture. So Mark actually tells us why Jesus needed to withdraw. Alright? Mark gives us a picture as to why Jesus and his disciples needed to pull away a bit. And what is that? It is to rest. All right, it says here, he withdrew from there to a boat in a desolate place by himself and rest a while. He went to this place to rest. He wanted his disciples to rest and perhaps do some, let me put it this way, soul care. Any one of you who's sometimes like that, you're so busy with life and what do you say? I deserve a vacation. You know what I'm talking about, right? So I deserve to rest. I deserve some solitude for a while. I deserve some alone time because of the busyness of the ministry. I'm here week in and week out, so I need to distance myself for a while from church people. So now, looking into that, it says here that people are following him despite the fact that they needed to rest. I'd like for us to look at verse 4. In verse 4 of the account in John, here's the question that we have. Why were there so many people? I mean, friends, imagine this with me for a while. The crowd here is so thick. I look at Peter. Peter is irritated. John is tired. So what do we do now? Let's pull out from this crowd and rest for a while. And the moment they get into the other place, guess what? There's more people in that place. So, alam mo parang nagbakasyon ka, nagpunta ka ng Boracay, pagdating mo sa Boracay, andun pa rin yung trabaho. Alright, so parang kagabi, nagmi-meeting kami, may dalang laptop si Godi, nagtatrabaho. Yung parang ganun po. So like, it doesn't seem to escape you. You feel like, time to sell my PS4, time to sell my PS5, time to sell this stuff because I don't have time for them anymore. Alright, and then the moment you get to that place, they're still met by another huge crowd. Why? Because it says here in verse 4, it was actually the Passover. So I'd like for us to understand this. We've been on this over and over again. Every time the feast of the Passover is at hand or is happening, it gives us a picture that there are so many pilgrims going to Jerusalem, making their way towards Jerusalem. So these are people coming from the north, and then they heard about Jesus, so they met Jesus in that place. In fact, it says here, look at this, verse 10, have the people sit down. Now, there was so much grass in the place. The men who sat down, about how many people? 5,000. It says here that these are just the men, all right? So they didn't count the kids and the women. And usually, women are actually more in number. So in our estimate, perhaps, how many people are we talking about? Perhaps, I don't know, 12,000 people, right? So 12,000 people or 15,000 pressing in on the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is kind of like, you know, NBA playoffs atmosphere, something like that, right? So you have thousands of people pressing in, multitudes because there were pilgrims. And then you have so many people who are on a quote-unquote pilgrimage. It also tells us that they were most likely tired. When you're tired, you become 
grumpy. What makes you grumpy is when you are, when you're hungry, right? Now we can all relate to each other, right? So you might see we are, we become grumpy when we are hungry. Despite the fact that we have so much reserve, we still become grumpy, right? So this is what you have here. Imagine the atmosphere at this moment. Thousands of people were hungry on their way to Jerusalem. So going back, how does Jesus respond? We're not Jesus, so it's safe for us to make some assumption. Sometimes, when you pull away from a crowd to have an alone time, and at the moment you get there, that same crowd are still here, what happens to you? You get annoyed. Right? You go to Boracay and you want to have your alone time because you can't do much of your selfie when you're with friends. You're in Boracay, you put your phone, dance your TikTok, and then you notice that the people around you are your friends from Dumaguete. That's what we have here. So what happens here? You get annoyed, you get irritated, you get angry. You give a huge sigh. You start just becoming annoyed. So here's my question. How does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond? Look at Matthew chapter 15, verse 32. Look at this. It says here in verse 32 that Jesus called his disciples to him and said, look at this. Here's what Jesus said. I have compassion. That's Jesus. Come on now. You know what that tells me? It tells me that if I keep coming to Jesus, like, you know, pulling his robe for attention, he doesn't get annoyed. Right? In fact, it says here, he had compassion in the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. In other translation, he said, I have compassion on them because they look like sheep without a shepherd. All right? Doesn't get annoyed. Come on now. Doesn't get irritated. No matter perhaps how introverted he was, doesn't get annoyed. What we have here, in a time that Jesus badly needed a time for himself and his disciples, he ended up, you know, taking time ministering to people still. He still ended up, you know, ministering to people. Now, that's Jesus. We're not like that, I would assume. You start you know, looking into things that you deserve this vacation. Now, I want you to understand, if you feel bad about that, make no mistake, the disciples are also like that. That's how Jesus responded. How does the disciples respond? Mark chapter 6, verse 36. Here's what they have to say. Send them away. Send them away, Lord, to go into the surrounding countrysides and villages and buy themselves something to eat. You folks catch this? I don't think these are gentle guys, you know. These are bearded, rude individuals. And they tell Jesus, send them away. Send them away so that we can have our, what, our alone time. Now, I want you to understand, that's not the only time that they did that. When they saw the Syrophoenician woman, if you remember, what do they do? Go away. When they saw the kids come into Christ, what do they say? Go away. Right? So it gives us a picture of how selfish we are. In case you have not noticed how sinful you are, if you have this in your thought to send people away, then it gives you a picture of how sinful we are. Not so with Jesus. Amen? He always moves in compassion. In fact, it says here, this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15. He said, I am unwilling to send them away hungry. I can send them away, but they need to eat first lest they faint 
on the way. All right, so what do we have? Let's go further. Let's move further. So here's what happened. Now let's go to John chapter 6. Let's go to verse 5. What does Jesus do? He looks at Philip. Why? Because Philip was actually from Bethsaida. He was from that region. He looks at Philip. And what does he tell Philip? Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Actually, Jesus knew the answer. In verse 6, it gives us a picture that you know, Jesus actually knew the answer. It says here, Jesus said this only to test him, to see how Philip will respond. In the other gospel accounts, here's what Jesus told his disciples. He saw the crowd. His disciples tells him, send them away. You know what he tells them? You guys, feed them. Ah, uh, Lord, soul care, alone time, mental health. No, feed them, feed them. You know what Jesus is essentially telling us? A life following Christ is a life invested in people. Well, I'm not saying that having a break, having rest, all of these things are wrong. That's not the point. But Jesus is simply saying that you need to have a heart of compassion for people. I realize that if you look at verse 5, when Jesus asked, where are we to buy bread? Which bakery perhaps? This was simply a question to put us in a place of what? Realizing our limits. You folks realize that Jesus is actually setting this up for a miracle, isn't it? He simply wanted to see his disciples come into a place of realization that this thing that Jesus is asking them is beyond their capacity. It's beyond their power. You know, things in your life where you realize, no, this is beyond my capacity. This is actually beyond my power. What could we be talking about? You could be talking about cancer. We could be talking about provision for hospital and stuff like that. This is way beyond our capacity. Amen? So, if you have come to a point where you realize, Lord, this is way beyond me, then you are in a good position. I'm going to share with you a story for a while. We are entering the second phase of our building project. We already have our temporary occupancy permit. So, what does it mean? In the next coming weeks, you won't be sitting on those chairs anymore. But rather, we will be moving to our new facility. What we're waiting for actually is for us to energize this place, for the electric company to energize this place, and we're good to go. When you get there, it's not yet done, but nonetheless, we're moving to that place. Now, when I started looking at that, I realized, oh, here's how much we have put in or invested in that building so far. We have invested a total of 23 million pesos in that building. And it blows my mind because I realized, okay, it wasn't like we're counting every month. It's just that we're in the project for like, what, more than a year now? And the summary that came to me is that we've put in 23 million pesos for the building. So the question now is, where did the money come from? Definitely, at the end of the day, it's not because of one donor gave so-and-so, one donor gave so-and-so. It's actually a good thing to see that happen, but at the end of the day, we see that it's actually the faithfulness of the Lord. Right? I mean, if you've never visited that building, I suggest you visit it now while we're not yet there so that you would see how big this building is, right? So as to why we did this project, we are just really doing this project because we want to have this building for us to train and raise more leaders, right? So when we come at the point wherein we realize that this is way beyond us, funding is not here, budget is way beyond us, then calls for miracle then, amen? We are actually in a good position when we have something when we come to those kinds of places. Now look at this. 
Here's what's interesting. It says here, Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get their fill. Now look at this. Jesus says, go to bread camp, buy the bread. And Philip was like, <laughs> joker ka Lord. Even if we have this much money, we won't have enough for what? For 12,000 people. Imagine feeding 12,000 people. Kahit pa communion elements lang yan, magkano yan. Kahit yun lang ibigay natin. But ang goal ni Lord, as you would realize later, the goal of Jesus here was not just to make them survive the moment. No, to have their feel. So Philip knew for a fact our money's not enough. No bakery can bake this much. Here's what's interesting. Look at verse 8. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Lord, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Look at this. You go to the account of Andrew, you'd realize something. You know, Andrew, Andrew has the habit of bringing people to the Lord. You know, this guy, I'm looking at the attitude of this guy, and I feel like his attitude is two-pronged. One is, he wants people to meet Jesus. All right? The other one is, you always anticipate that Jesus is going to do something. Because it doesn't make sense. You know, in his right mind, logically thinking, when Andrew saw that there's this young boy who has five loaves and two fish and thousands of people, of course, he knew for a fact that it isn't enough for everyone. But he tells Jesus anyway, Jesus, look at this young boy. At the back of his mind, what do we have here? He's anticipating for a miracle to happen. Amen? He wasn't all nega. Like, ah, nanapunta. It wasn't like that. He's always anticipating. What does it mean? He understands and knows for a fact that at this junction, this man right here is not just a rabbi. This is the Lord of all creation. In the years or perhaps the weeks that he has been following Jesus, he started forming his own Christology about this man. He started understanding who this man is, that this isn't just a wonderful teacher. This isn't just a gentle guy. This isn't just someone who loves children. This is the Lord of all creation. That's why I'm bringing you, Lord, so that my brother and my other friends who are fellow disciples of yours and with the rest of the 12,000 people so that we can all experience a miracle. Amen? There was an anticipation. There was an anticipation. And this boy had five barley loaves and two fish. But Andrew says, but what are they for so many? You know, I realized as I was looking at this, sometimes all we need to understand is just to perhaps make a point out of verse 9. You know, what Jesus is actually looking for is someone who's actually simply completely given over to God. Do you have friends who are so gifted? Do you realize that there is a difference between being so gifted and being so committed? You know, sometimes when we are so gifted, I don't know, but sometimes when we are so gifted, we are flighty. There's no such word. We try to uh, shy away. Why? Because we feel like we are worth more. Alright? Compared to people who understand this is only what I have, this is only who am I, who I am, this is only my capacities, but I am completely given over to the Lord, and these are the people that God uses to do exploits in His kingdom. And the boy here simply has five barley loaves and two fish. And what happens now? Look at this. John chapter 6, verse 10, Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Right? So, pinopo di Lord. So, let's go to the rest of the story now. There was so much grass in the place. So, the men sat down about thousands in numbers. All right? So, what happens next? 
Jesus then took the loaves. Jesus told them, sit down. In John, it says, sit down. In other gospel accounts, it says, sit them down and divide them in groups of tens or fifties. Mga mukhang matatakaw, ten. Fifty, ten, fifty, ten. So, Jesus started what? Telling his disciples to divide them in groups. So, now they're sitting down. So, what happens next? Jesus then took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. Alright? So, also the fish as much as they wanted. So, it wasn't like, by dua lang, ha? Friends, this is buffet. Get as much as you want. Alright? Have your fill. In groups of tens, fifties, this year, and when he had given thanks, it simply says he didn't bless the food, but he blessed God. All right? And what happens next? They started getting food, food, barley loaves, take note of that. Barley loaves, fish, barley loaves, fish, barley loaves, fish. And it says here, when everyone had eaten and had their fill, he told his disciples, guess what? Gather up the leftover. Meron pang natira. Right? So, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Alright? So, in short, what does Jesus do? Clay go. Clay go, guys. Clay go. And so they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now, look at this. Look at verse 14. It says here, When the people saw the sign that, they, that he had done, it says here, They said, This is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. Now, I want us to understand this for a while. Question, is this a miracle? What do you think? It's a miracle, isn't it? Now, can we say that a miracle transpired here, therefore, this man Jesus is God? We can actually say that. Look, I want you to understand this. A miracle transpired here, therefore, this man Jesus is God. Possibly. But here's the thing. There were Old Testament prophets who did miracles and yet they were not God. Catch it? You have Moses, you have Elijah, you have Elisha, right? And these people, what? They work miracles and yet we understand that they were not God. So it is not entirely sufficient to say, you did miracle and then therefore you are God. No, something else should warrant that. Something else should warrant that for them to come to a conclusion, this man is the prophet. Why? Where is that in the story? Something needs to warrant us. So here's what I want us to understand. You know, in Jewish tradition, say for instance, you're a... Remember when Jesus, when the parents of Jesus, Mary and Joseph lost him? They lost Jesus. Guess what? They were searching for Jesus. Where did they find Jesus? In the temple. Talking with what? Talking with the priests. Talking with the Pharisees perhaps. Talking with the scribes. Talking with people. Now I want you to understand this. In their culture, they know their Bible. They memorize the Torah. It's kind of like this. If you folks know, if our generation know everything that's happening on social media, by virtue of how much invested we are in social media, during their time, even kids, they know their Bibles. They know the story. So what am I talking about? Every time, this is how they live. This is their culture. Let's say they are friends of Mark. Every time Mark is doing something, every time something is happening with the sky, whether the sky is dark, the sky is blue, every time something is happening in the sea, what do they do? Because they know their Torah, they know their Bible. What do they do? They always try to make connections with the past. So it's like, if I am a Jewish person, let's say I'm a 28-year-old Jewish person, so every time I do my day-to-day -day living, whether I'm a fisherman, whether I'm a carpenter, at the back of my mind, I always have the backdrop of the Old Testament. At the back of my mind, I know Moses, I know Abraham, I know the story of my people. 
So every time something happens, I always try to interpret whatever is happening based on what has happened in the past. So every time my day-to-day living is, I always try to connect the past with the present. That's what they do. They always try to connect the past with the present. Here's what we have, and this is actually my point. Jewish people, like what he said, they always connect the past with the present. In this specific story, what we have here is that they look at Jesus, and they're connecting Jesus. And Jesus himself is connecting himself with two Old Testament prophets, right? To prove a point. To prove a point. To prove a point. So this isn't just random thing that happened. No, Jesus planned this out. He planned this so that the people, the audience, 12,000 of them will start understanding. Wait a second. I know this story. I know this story. He wanted them to come to that point. He is basically comparing himself with two Old Testament prophets, namely Moses and Elisha. Look at this. In Mark chapter 6, verse 31, he said, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place. As we understand, and they all know that Moses went to a desolate place called the wilderness. And Jesus, it says here, he went up the mountain. We understand that Moses went up the mountain. Both of them started teaching, doing all of these things. So there is what? They look at the works of Jesus, and they're like, wait, wait, this looks familiar. There's a semblance between what he's doing and what Moses did in the past based on what our fathers taught us. So they started seeing the semblance between Jesus and Moses right here. In fact, look at this. In Luke chapter 9, verse 14, it says here, For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about, what, 10 or 50. Guess what? Is it familiar with everyone? Remember when Jethro was coming to Moses. When he went to Moses and told Moses, Hey, in Exodus chapter 10, here's how you ought to talk to them. You divide them in groups of 50s, 100s, assign leaders to them. And here's what's interesting. We are in John chapter 6, isn't it? Verses 1 to 15. A little later, there was a conversation between Jesus and one of those guys. Here's what happened. John chapter 6, verse 32. Look at this. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses. Told ya. Catch it? Because they were like, they were like, huh? Moses fed us in the wilderness. Ganon po sila. We are the descendants of Abraham. We know David. We know Moses. We know Solomon. So it's always like, then who are you? It's always like that. And here's what Jesus has to say. Truly, truly, it was actually not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. See, we're still talking about bread, isn't it? We're still talking about bread. We're still talking about food. And here's what happened. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Then it starts saying, look at this verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread. You know what was happening here? They had their feel and they were following Jesus and they wanted more. They wanted more. And then this was actually selfish because they're simply talking about food, physical nourishment. But Jesus is now trying to divert their attention. Hey guys, it's not just about your hunger. It's not just about your physical need. It's about your spiritual need. And they tell Jesus, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What do we have here? What were they talking about? The manna in the desert. Food in a desolate place. And they're like, hey, Jesus, 
Moses, Moses gave us manna in the desert. And so they were like, sir, give us this bread. You know what? In essence, they were saying, we want to taste what manna is like. And you know what Jesus simply tells them? In essence, Jesus tells them, you know what? I am the better Moses. Because I am the better Moses, and it goes on to say that I am the better provider. Jesus compares himself to Moses and simply announced to everyone that he is the greater Moses. Are you folks following? And then it says here, we try to shift, and then he compares himself actually with another prophet. I'd like for you to see this for yourself. Please turn your Bibles for about to 2 Kings. Go to 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 42, down to verse 44. Look, let's read this. As you read this, I want you to look at it closely. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God, bread of the first fruits. Look at this, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in a sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? Give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord. They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Can I ask you this question? Is there a similarity between that story and this story that we have here today? Sounds like it, isn't it? Looks like it. In what essence? Look, a man came from Baal Shalisha bringing the man of God. Guess what? The context of this is also Passover. This happened during the Passover. And then it says here, and then this man had 20 loaves of what kind of bread? What was the bread of the boy? Not Spanish, right? Barley bread. And it says here, Elijah said, give to the men that they may eat. Isn't that what Jesus also said? Feed them. Give the food to them. Here, look at this. And servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? Isn't that what Philip said? This isn't enough. This is ridiculous. It's the same thing that man said. So he repeated, give it to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and go, look at this, and have some. Do we have some leftovers in John chapter 6? So he said it before them and they ate and had some left. According to the word of the Lord. When John the Baptist was ministering, people said, oh, this man, this man with Kamal here, this man is Elijah. In the Old Testament, Elijah went before Elisha, isn't it? And then we understand if John was Elijah, then certainly the one who's following him is like the Elisha. And as we understand, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Did Elijah did some miracles? He did a lot of miracles. Now, here's my question. Don't you think that actually Elisha doubled those miracles? He doubled those miracles. John simply said, this man who's coming after me, I'm not unworthy to untie sandals. He is far greater than I am. In this story right here in 2 Kings chapter 4, if you look at this, there's a huge parallelism. It's incredibly identical. The story of Elisha is the same with the story of Jesus. So what do we have here? Elisha, it says here, he had what? How many bread? 20. Right? For how many men? 100 men. 20 bread for 100 men. For Jesus, we have 5 barley loaves, 5 bread for 5,000 men. Overall, perhaps how many? 12 or 15,000. What do we have here? Jesus is the greater Elisha. Therefore, he's the greater miracle worker. So in essence, Jesus was saying, this isn't just miracle, miracle per se. No, 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 no. You have to understand who I am. I am greater than Moses. 
I am greater than Elijah. I am greater than Elisha. I start thinking about this and we realize that if you look at this, no wonder in verse 14, their conclusion was, oh, this is the prophet. They didn't say, ah, tama, prophet nga. They didn't say, this is a prophet. Like what I said, they connect the past with the present and they realize, ah, familiar, barley loaves, Elisha. Ah, familiar, teaching from this, ah, Moses. See, they started connecting and they realized their conclusion was, this man is the prophet. He is not just a prophet. And I want to end with this. In verse 15, it's quite interesting because it says here, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Look at this. It says here, when they saw the miracle, they wanted to take him by force. Commentators said that this group of people could actually be what? The zealots. Who wanted, to, who wanted to rebel against the Roman rule. Zealots would frequent the mountainsides. In short, they were like revolutionaries. They wanted a military kingdom. And they saw Jesus and they realized, this is our king. But Jesus withdrew. You know why? Because he's not that sort of king. He's not a nationalistic leader. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. When we look at this story, we realize that, all right, this is the God that we worship. Personally speaking, I look at this and I realize, all right, there can be so many evidences of miracles. But at the end of the day, I realize one thing. It should get me to a point of realizing who Jesus is. When we talk about miracles, yes, are we going to pray for miracles of healing, miracles of provision? Of course, we're going to do that. But without a realization or an understanding of who Jesus is, that is the greater miracle worker. Imagine that, friends. Look at this. He's the greater provider. Money in the desert? He's way more than that. What does he tell me then? Every time I become anxious about money. Do you folks get anxious with money? Anyone here gets anxious with money? Most likely all of us. Every time I get anxious with money, I don't have to remain anxious because I understand one thing. Jesus will provide for me. Amen? Jesus will provide. He's the greater provider. Every time we come to a point where our situation right now, it simply requires a miracle. All right, what ministers to me is the fact that there may be so many sources of help from all around us. Ninong can help us. Tito can help us. Donor can help us. Partner can help us. Husband can help us. Wife can help us. But at the end of the day, Jesus remains to be the greater miracle worker. He's the better Elisha and the better Moses. And I hope and pray that all of us will come to a point where we realize that and embrace that in our life. You just heard a message from Victory Dumaguete. For more messages like these or to access other resources, please visit victorydumaguete.org or like our page on Facebook.